Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted today uh, for this webcast to welcome Michael Pollan, professor of journalism at the University of California at Berkeley and best-selling author. Uh, his two most recent books have generated a great deal of attention, Omnivore's Dilemma and then the, the more recent of the two, In Defense of Food. But in addition, Michael has written some excellent books before that. Uh, particularly the botany of desire and second nature. So, Michael, I'm delighted you're here to talk to us about the groundbreaking work you've done on food and food policy. Thank you, Kelly. Good to be here. Michael, you've made an enormous difference in in capturing something that's important in the lives and the well-being of people and turning it into something that motivates people to take action and, and thinks th have people thinking about food in a different kind of way. And there's so many levels on which we could conduct this conversation and so many good things you've done. But let me start off with a fundamental question, and that is, what is food? And I know you've thought about that a lot. And um, I ask the question, and I know you've done this extensively in your writing. When I start some talks now, I'll show a food label from a common food and ask the audience to guess what it is. It happens to be a chocolate Pop-Tart, but of course people guess a hundred different things, which itself is an interesting phenomenon because it could be so many things. And this food label has 56 entries into it. And so the question is, is this a food? Is it a chemical? Is it, should it be a controlled substance, for example, <laughs> if food can set up an addiction? And these are not, these sound like silly questions, yeah, but, but in not. fact, they're exactly the kind of things right. you've thought a lot about. So how do you define Well, that's not a food by my, by my reckoning. Um, and one of the things I did in this most recent book, In Defense of Food, was try to uh, define food. It took me about 14 pages. Now, this never was a problem. Food was what people ate essentially, <laughs> and that qualified it. If you ate it, it didn't kill you, it was food. Um, but today, uh, and over the last several decades, w there is this other thing, what I call edible food-like substances that have in increasingly come to dominate the supermarket and, and, and restaurants and food services. And these are uh, things that, that might smell like food, look like food, even taste like food, but they're not food. And um, how I define them, I mean, so what, what I try to come up with is some algorithms to help you kind of sort out the food from the edible food-like substances. And that Pop-Tart would, would fail several tests. One, one, my first test is if your great-grandmother wouldn't recognize it as food, it probably isn't food. Um, and I, I have trouble imagining my great-grandmother holding up that box of Pop-Tarts and looking at it and figuring out, what the hell that is. Um, another rule is, how many ingredients does it have? And I suggest that if it has more than five or ten ingredients, then it's not food. And if those ingredients are chemicals, unfamiliar chemicals, uh, that your first grader can't pronounce or you can't pronounce, that's not food. Uh, if it has high fructose corn syrup, it's not food. Not because high fructose corn syrup is necessarily a more evil nutrient than um, than sugar, but because it's a marker of a highly processed food. Um, so my definition of food is kind of traditional. It's the foods that people have been eating for you know a very long time, not just the last 10 or 20 years. Um, foods are things that are minimally processed. Foods are things that are based on plants and animals that you can still recognize <laughs> to some extent, because this is really what we eat. We eat plants and animals. And uh, these these neo-foods, these edible food-like substances, are so far removed from plants and animals, from species, that uh, I think they've passed over into another realm. Now, it is true that if something like a Pop-Tart survives for 100 years, 
I might be prepared to reconsider, but my sense is it won't because these edible food-like substances come and go really, really quickly because they don't do very much for anybody. Well, the question is, 100 years from now, will there be some other terrible version of something? Oh, yeah, no question. Like, well, maybe not. I mean, maybe the food environment is changing in a positive way, and one can be an optimist and hope for the best and say, well, 100 years is a long time, and some critical mass of public opinion is beginning to change, and maybe we're headed in a good direction. What do you sense in that regard? I think we are headed in a very good direction. I think it's a really exciting time, and we, we stand at the, at the very beginning of a, a very powerful movement to reform the American food chain. Uh, at every level, beginning with the farm and going up to the way we eat and where and where we eat. But I don't foresee industrial food, edible food-like substances going away. I foresee a time when that world, that supermarket world, those middle aisles in the supermarket, that that shrinks and the real food, supply of real food expands. So I see more of a reformation in the offing than a revolution. So in the same way, you know, there used to be one church, essentially, if you were a Christian, uh, through which you could um, deal with your spirituality or, or uh, relate to uh, the deity. Um, when Luther came along, suddenly you had dozens of other churches, and they grew bigger and the Catholic Church grew smaller, but the Catholic Church didn't go away. Um, I think that that's, that's what is to be hoped for. Because we're, we're, there's no one answer. There's no one proper food chain. Um, one of the, the amazing things about humans is that we have thrived on a great many remarkably different diets. There is no one ideal human diet. I mean, you go around the world and you look at the, what, what the Maasai warriors eat, you know, essentially cattle blood and milk, or Central American Indians, corn and beans, or uh, Inuit in Greenland, you know, seal blubber and lichens. I mean, it's an amazing, and we are omnivores. There's a great many things we can be healthy on. The, the problem is we've invented the one diet that uh, seems to make us reliably sick. This Western diet of highly processed food, uh, refined flours, refined oils, um, lots of uh, lots of calories, and not a lot of whole grain fruits and vegetables. Um, so uh, that's quite an achievement for a civilization to actually come up with a, with a, with a diet that kills it pretty reliably. Um, but so so we find ourselves, um, and the challenge I think, because you know there's a lot of dispute among scientists about. What exactly is the food problem? What are the what are the nutrients that are making us sick? What in the Western diet uh, leads to obesity and diabetes and heart disease and the various diet-related cancers? And you know, at various times, people have said, "Oh, it's the saturated fat, or it's the refined carbohydrates," and they'll, we'll be debating this. But we shouldn't overlook the big fact, which is we know this thing called the Western diet leads to these diseases, which used to be called the Western diseases. So the challenge for us, while we wait for the scientists to figure it all out, is to get off the Western diet to the extent we can. And the great thing about today, and why I'm so hopeful, is that we can do that without you know, having to go back to the land and grow, grow all your own food. I mean, you know, th these were crackpot ideas 30 or 40 years ago. And now you can just go to the farmer's market or buy organic in the supermarket. Um, there are all, and you can find grass-fed beef and pastured you know, poultry and and um, so we live in a time where we have choice that we did not have. And consumers are creating those choices with their food dollars by voting with their forks. I agree. So I'm, I'm very hopeful. Um, but I don't, of, I don't see the Pop-Tart going away. Well, there are a lot of very positive signs. I agree with that. You know, the, the point back to the Pop-Tart is that y you, you talk about the amazing elasticity, if you will, of the human diet. 
and part of it's shaped by environment. So the you know people in one culture aren't going to be like the Inuit in the cold climates. But part of it, of course, is shaped by the industry that has things to sell. And so the fact that we believe that a Pop-Tart is food is shaped by marketing and, you know, all those sort of factors. And so to some extent, there's an industry that tells us what is food and what is not food. And you can manipulate foods in lots of different ways. Do you see a role for some manipulation of food? For example, are there places where genetically modifying food is a good idea? Is there a place where fortifying food is a good idea? Um, you know, I have yet to see the genetically modified food product that seems like a good idea. I'm not willing to say that technology is inherently a bad one, um, but when it is applied in a way that really increases the sustainability of agriculture or the healthfulness of food, I'll, I'll be ready to listen. But that's not what they're focused on. They talk about that a lot, and that's how they sell their product. They sell their product on future promises that seem ever retreating. Essentially, they sell you know herbicide-resistant crops and some crops that produce their own uh, BT pesticides. Um, it's a very narrow range of products they're selling, even though the talk is all about foods that will produce their own fertility and do well in drought and and so let's see. Let's see. You know, let's see if they can actually come up with this. Uh, I, I, I think that there's a lot of snake oil being sold in the name of genetically modified food. I think that fortification has its place. Um, I think that there have been cases where, uh, you know, the nature of food processing essentially is to remove nutrients from food. And when we started, when we came up with white flour, that was a momentous uh, event in the 1860s and 70s where we really learned how to make flour really white and drive most of the nutrients out of it. Um, and uh, this is, uh, you know, white flour is the first fast food in a way, you know, and we love it because it's, it's uh, easy to digest and it turns to sugar even before we swallow it. It starts turning to sugar. It's, it's, it's so, uh, uh, and we have a, you know, a profound weakness, genetically, uh, genetic weakness for sugar. Um, we had a series of, of uh, serious nutritional deficiencies that led to a public health crisis when we started doing this um, uh, because people were missing key B vitamins that we'd refined out of the flour. And when we figured this out, we put them back in, folic acid and other B vitamins. And, and that was a good thing. I think lives were saved by doing that. Um, so I think that um, if your refinement process is robbing foods of nutrients and you recognize it and you're having a deficiency problem as a result, Fortifying in that kind of case makes it seems like good public health policy. Um, I think fortifying as a uh, a shortcut to eating real food, let's say supplementing a McDonald's meal with all the vitamins that it doesn't have, um, when you don't have to eat McDonald's and there's real food, uh, you know, in general you're better off eating the real food. Supplements don't, uh, you know, it's one thing to cure a deficiency. That's you, you put that over here. But basically, um, most of the science of supplements suggests they're not as good as the whole foods uh, that they come from. Um, and that in some cases, they make things worse. So the idea that you can you know, get from a pill what people once got from food, I think is, is really mistaken. Uh, we don't know enough about what we've taken out of the foods to, to give you that pill. Our knowledge, uh, that pill assumes a perfect scientific knowledge that we do not have. And the scientists will tell you they do not know. You know, 
that the history of nutritional science has been the history of one overlooked set of nutrients after another. You know, it started with Gustav Liebig in the 1830s or 40s, and he isolated the, the, the macronutrients, the fat, protein, carbohydrates, and he said, we've got it now. This is what humans need to grow. Um, and he made a baby formula with those th things. Uh, and lo and behold, the babies didn't do very well. In fact, they died very often. And so, well, something was missing. And it took us another 75 years to figure out, oh, there are these things called vitamins. You need those too. So then we put those in and we thought, okay, now we've got it all figured out. You got the macronutrients and you got these vitamins. And still, when you made formula out of that, babies didn't do very well. Um, so what was wrong? Well, it turns out there are different kinds of fats. You don't just need fat. You need omegas threes. You need these essential fatty acids. And now we're learning about the various phytochemicals, plant chemicals that you need to be healthy. And I have no doubt in 50 years there'll be another screen that will allow us to see another set of nutrients we're missing. Mm -hmm. So the idea we can simulate um, in our laboratories what it has taken uh, evolution and co-evolution, you know, millions of years to develop uh, is, is arrogance of the highest order. And, um, uh, you know, maybe someday the scientists will figure it out and they'll be able to make food in a pill and that will give us everything we need. It still won't taste very good and they will have robbed us of pleasure. Um, but my guess is they will have robbed us a lot of, of a lot of important nutrients long before that. So, you know, food works and food was designed by a process of coevolution um, that, you know, the plants essentially uh, evolved to give us what we need and, um, and we evolved to, to, to do well, as you point out, regionally on what nature had to offer in that place. And there, and there are people who are evolved to eat the foods of where they live. And there are people who don't eat milk because cows were not around. And um, that is a process of design so complex, so gradual, so sophisticated, that the idea that, in, that we're anywhere near being, to, being able to, to simulate that is, is ridiculous. You know, there, and then there's, of course, the exploitative side of the fortification, where a company can put together a very calorie-dense, nutrient-poor food for children and say it's fortified with eight essential vitamins and minerals. Which yeah, the, the breakfast cereal story. Yeah, which the know. kids, you know, the kids aren't deficient in those things to begin with. So it's very interesting. So you mentioned the Western diet and the negative impact it has on health. But, of course, one of the things that you've written so brilliantly about is the, the effect of consuming the Western diet on the environment. Yeah. Can, we t can you give us a sort of broad overview about some of the impacts that eating that kind of a diet has on the environment, and then ultimately that links back to health, but just the environmental concerns? You know, we're encouraged by food marketing and, 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 uh, and generally have the way food is presented to us to think that there it is, it's food. It comes from the supermarket or it comes from the restaurant. But of course it doesn't. It comes from the land or the seas. Um, food, all food, is part of a food chain. We are part of a food chain. And to really understand food as a matter of health, health in the broadest sense of the word, you really need to look at the whole food chain. And so what I tried to do in my books is, has been to follow food back to where it begins. And all food begins in the same place. Photosynthesis, basically. Every calorie of food energy begins with the sun um, and, a, and a leaf, a chloroplast. It might be an algae, it might be in a leaf. And uh, there are many ways to get from that transaction of, of sun and water and, and, and uh, a couple soil minerals to, to the food on your plate. Uh, there's an industrial way of doing it. There's an organic way of doing it. There's a local way of doing it. There's a hunter-gatherer way of doing it. You know, there are many food chains. And, we, and the great thing about being human is we can choose our food chains and shape them to a considerable extent. 
Um, the Western diet, which is to say all this processed food, um, comes from a particular food chain. And that is a food chain dominated by a very small number of crops. Uh, you know, two-thirds of the calories in our diet come from just four crops, corn, soy, wheat, and rice. Um, that's pretty astonishing. People have eaten much greater diversity uh, historically. There, there are something like 80,000 species we can eat out there, but we're relying on four. Why are we doing that? Well, because we grow vast monocultures of these, uh, of these few crops. Um, they are remarkable plants. They're very efficient at turning sunlight into food, uh, more efficient than some other things. But the real reason we grow them in, in that kind of profusion is because it, it kind of fits the industrial template. Um, if you grow a lot of one thing, you can harvest it with one machine on one day. Um, you can mechanize it to a considerable extent and reduce the amount of labor. And we, these two technologies came along that made it possible to grow these vast monocultures. Uh, one is synthetic fertilizer, uh, which allows you to replenish the soil um, because normally if you grow the same thing year after year, you're, you're, you destroy your soil, and so that's why you have to rotate. But uh, fertilizer allows you to escape that need. And the other is when you have a large monoculture, you're also going to have a large population of pests because they love you know, endless fields of one thing that allows them to reproduce. Uh, so you need pesticide. Both of these things, by the way, are made from uh, the technologies of uh, the 20th century world wars. Uh, munitions, uh, was turned ammonium nitrate was turned into fertilizer, and nerve gas was turned into pesticide. So as Vandana Shiva says, we're still eating the leftovers of World War II. So monoculture was a great boon in terms of the productivity of the average farmer. And it, it gave us a situation that we have today where one farmer in America can feed about 126 people. Um, that's amazing. These are the most productive individuals who have ever lived on this planet. And we shouldn't diminish that accomplishment. Uh, it's also led to a situation where we only have a, a million farmers um, for a population of 300 million. So, um, but the problem with those monocultures is when you're growing those kind of commodity crops, they can't be eaten exactly. They're not exactly food. They're raw materials for industrial and processed food. So you take all that corn and soy, say, and you feed it to animals and you make cheap feedlot meat. And you take that corn and you turn it into high fructose corn syrup. And all those obscure ingredients on the side of that pack of Pop-Tarts, I'll bet you half of them are corn-derived or soy-derived. Um, and, and, um, uh, and the soy you process and you either feed it to animals as their protein source or you turn it into uh, soy oil, which now constitutes 10% of the diet in America. Soy oil, most mm. of it hydrogenated or partially hydrogenated. So um, the monoculture of, on the farms, which was very productive for the farmers and, and, the whole, and all of agribusiness because it took all these expensive inputs to grow, leads to a diet um, heavy, heavy on processed food, the Western diet. Um, you can't grow vegetables quite that way, um, and especially in the Midwest. So they're linked, you see? I mean, it's all part of the same food chain. And if you grow food that way, you're going to eat food that way. And that, that method of growing food is so productive. And of course, it takes policy, too. That was the third ingredient, along with the technology and the genius of the plants. But that you have a set of subsidies to encourage people to plant large fields of one thing. You subsidize corn and soybeans. You forbid them from growing vegetables in the Midwest, as we do. Um, and, you, um, and suddenly, you have vast overproduction. What happens to that overproduction? Well, 
it, it, it brings down the price of certain kinds of calories in the supermarket, high fructose corn syrup and hydrogenated oil in particular. And those become the really cheap calories. Unfortunately, they're really unhealthy calories, especially as they, they you know, as we're eating them. So you supersize your portions, you know, and when Coca-Cola finds the, the, the raw material for its soda going down in price because there's so much corn in the marketplace, they, uh, they take that, you know, sexy svelte eight ounce bottle that, that, that they had when we were kids and now they have this big 20 ounce Coke. They supersize it. They give you more rather than lowering the price. So, um, so industrial agriculture has given us industrial food and um, they're of a piece. And that's why I think you've got to look at the whole food chain when you talk about reform. Uh, you've got to figure out a way to encourage the farmers, uh, give them a set of incentives, encourage them, them to grow healthy calories rather than unhealthy calories. Which, by the way, they would be just as happy to do. But they live in a box determined by a set of agricultural policies that are rewarding them for growing corn and soybeans, which is exactly what agribusiness wants them to grow. So on this broad scale, you've talked about the health consequences of the Western diet and the environmental consequences. Yeah, I didn't and really talk about those. I'm sorry, I didn't get to that part No, no, you did, you did in some ways. And the, the nice thing about talking about that, I think, is that the, you've had these two worlds kind of working in parallel, the public health world concerned about the impact of diet on health. And you've had a number, another group of people interested in uh, impact on the environment. And those two groups haven't talked very much. No, that's but right. It, but it does seem like there, and that's one thing at the Rudd Center that we'd like to do is bring together these relevant parties and say, how do we have common interests? How can we use our lobbying muscle together? How can we work together for a common goal? And so you spoke at one point about um, you know, a dozen different ways or a dozen different reasons that one might have for pushing for healthier foods. So talk about some, I mean, not, not that we need to do all 12, but what, what are some of the reasons that, why should the world care about changing well, the food environment? Because it has so many effects. I mean, food is absolutely central. You know, if you want to, um, there is no more profound way we affect the natural world than the way we grow our food. I mean, it is on our plates that you have your most powerful engagement with the natural world. Uh, it determines the landscape. I mean, we've deforested a lot of the planet in order to plant our row crops. It determines, or, or graze our livestock. It determines the composition of species on this planet because we decide through our preferences that there are going to be 100 million cattle in this country and only 10,000 wolves. Um, so the balance of species has been dictated by agriculture. Um, we decide which species will thrive and which will not. Um, so it's a really big deal and, um, and the biggest deal in terms of affecting the environment. But agriculture affects the environment in other ways too. I mean, it is a huge part of the climate change problem. Growing the food, food the way I'm describing, which is to say vast monocultures nourished by synthetic fertilizers which are made from fossil fuel, made from natural gas, and protected with pesticides, which are made from petroleum also, um, grown in distant places, trucked around the world, dried using natural gas on the farm, in the case of the corn, um, and then processed, which is also a very high energy um, uh, way to do things. We have gotten to a point where the average calorie of food in the American diet takes 10 calories of fossil fuel to make. Now, I said earlier, this is the original solar technology, food making. How could this be? Well, 100 years ago, you could make, um, for every calorie of fossil fuel you put in the system to drive your tractor or whatever it was, you could make two calories of food. 
So you see, we've basically taken our food and put it on the basis of fossil fuel, which is one of the reasons that climate change is strongly impacted by agriculture. And in fact, we will not get a handle on climate change until we reform the food system. So you see, the health of the individual and the health of the environment, and that is the linking word, health, are intimately connected. And doing the right thing for the health of the individual will be the right thing for the health of the environment, with one salient exception. Probably it would be a good thing if we all ate more fish. And the seas cannot support us all eating more fish. But with that exception, put aside, um, the best choices for the environment are the best choices for your health. Uh, which is to say, uh, a diverse polyculture on the farms, growing real food, not industrial raw materials, grown preferably close to you so it doesn't have to be trucked halfway around the world, um, is also going to be real food that is going to you know, be really good for your health. So it's, there are not too many you know, areas in life where we get to have our cake and eat it too and where we don't have conflicting values. Um, our values can be very consistent on this question. And what I've been trying to do in my work is encourage people to take a broader view of what health means. We tend to view health as a matter of our bodies and the chemicals we do or do not put into it. But the thing you learn when you, when, you, when you think ecologically and you look at the whole food chain is you realize your health is not bordered by your skin. That the health of the food chain of which you're a part affects you. And so that whether, even if you're eating fresh produce, lots of it, how was it grown? Well, it, we're learning if it was grown in healthy soil and organically, it probably is much more nutritious than the produce that was grown uh, industrially for several reasons that we don't fully understand, but we know the differences in nutrient levels, but it may be that the soil is degraded because it's only gotten synthetic fertilizer. It may be because we bred these um, industrial crops for yield and beauty and shipability rather than nu nutrient content. Or it may be because when you spray pesticides on plants, they're not forced to defend themselves. Uh, and that organic plants have to defend themselves to a greater extent against diseases and bugs. And the defense compounds that plants produce happen to be very valuable to our health. So there are three possible theories that would explain that. But the, the fact remains uh, that, that the way that there is a link between the health of the soil and your health, which was a really pioneering idea of organic agriculture. Sir Albert Howard back in the 30s said, he was the great English agronomist who taught us how to compost and spend time studying traditional ways in India of agriculture and was really worried about the especially synthetic fertilizer and what it was going to do to the health of the English population. He said that we would come to understand the problem of health in soil, plant, animal, and man as one great subject. In other words, all those things are linked. And so I think that's where we have to progress in our understanding about health and understand you can't divorce your health from the health of the food system you're part of. You know, I don't think anybody has done that more brilliantly than you have is to show, I mean, it's connect the dots, it's put the pieces of the puzzle together, it shows how it all fits, and you've done that really wonderfully. And most people, when they think, and more and more people, of course, are getting interested in climate change and protecting the environment, but they don't think about the food they eat in that context. No, and There's I think it's important we start doing that because it's, it's actually a place where we can we can re-solarize more, more easily um, because it is fundamentally a solar technology, growing food. So, that, so take one example. If you take the cattle off the feedlots where they're eating corn that's been grown using fossil fuel, and it's a very energy-intensive way. It takes 35 gallons of oil to produce a, a steer uh, ready for slaughter. And you put that animal back on grass, a few things have happened. Suddenly, that animal is not competing with humans 
for grain because, you know, it's feeding cattle corn is really inefficient. It takes 10 pounds of grain to get one pound of meat. That 10 pounds of grain could feed somebody for a long time. Uh, and there are people hungry right now because there's not enough corn. Um, but the other thing that happens is, so then you put them on a diet of, of grass, which we can't digest because we don't have a rumen. So you're, you're not competing with humans for food. And where did that grass come from? Well, that grass, you know, every one of those blades of grass is a solar collector. And that is a solar food chain. So the sun feeds the grass, and the grass feeds the ruminant, and the ruminant feeds us. There you have resolarized your meat production um, and, and diminished, not eliminated, because the cattle's still belching methane and things like that, but you have diminished the, uh, the carbon footprint of that hamburger. I'd like to ask you about biodiversity. Um, there was a graduate student who did a little work with us at one point who was studying oranges in Florida. And um, with, with the advent of, of uh, orange juice as a viable food product, the uh, oranges, were, and there were hundreds of strains of them apparently in Florida at one point, and now that's shrunk to four. And the reason is that these four strains of oranges produce the maximum amount of juice, the maximum amount of sugar. They're easiest to harvest. You know, you go on and on. It's back to the industrial agriculture thing. But the fact that there are only four strains makes them especially vulnerable to certain blights and certain pests. And then here you come in with the pesticides again. So how concerned are you about shrinking biodiversity? I think it's a huge problem. I mean, I think that, you know, you look at how nature works, and biodiversity is the great insurance policy. Um, and that, you, you know, the one thing nature never does is put all her eggs in one basket. And that's the tendency of industrialization, is find the optimal crop and just plant that. Um, you know, the same has happened with corn. The genetic diversity of our corn crop is, is really tiny, or, or our potato crop. And so, for example, let's look at the potato famine in, in Ireland. There's a great example. Everybody in Ireland was planting the same variety of supposedly optimal potatoes called the lumper. One day, a, a fungus disease comes along, airborne fungus, spreads over Ireland really quickly, and you know, almost overnight, all the potatoes in the ground turn to black mush. Uh, and um, a million Irish died in that famine, and another eight million had to leave Ireland and come to the United States. Um, that was the result of not diversifying your agriculture. Even having other varieties of potato would have protected you from that, let alone other varieties of plants. And so where did they, how did they solve the potato famine? How did they, how did they, you know, put the potato back on its feet, as it were? Well, they went back to South America, and they found varieties of potato. And in South America, which is the center of diversity, biodiversity for potatoes, there are 1,500 potatoes in, 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 in use in Peru. Um, and they've diversified for every ecological niche because they, fil they, they, they farm vertically. So you, the ecology changes every 100 feet in altitude or so. So you need a lot of diversity. And they found one that had resistance to, um, to the potato blight. And they introduced the genes from that. And they saved the potato. Now, what happens when we've persuaded the Peruvians that they should only grow russet Burbanks? Because that's what McDonald's likes to serve in their, in their restaurants in South America or anywhere else. Well, we're screwed. Because the next time that happens, and it will happen, there's a constant arms race between any kind of species and its pests its parasites. Um, we won't have a place to go. And when the orange blight hits, we won't be able to, you know, find that, that uh, strain, the, that set of genes uh, that will allow us to rescue the orange. So monoculture is, is, a, is a tremendous enemy of, of food security. 
um, and that there is powerful reasons to diversify the food supply, the, the genes of our crops, as an insurance policy. Not to mention the fact that we are, we know we're entering a period of climate change. So that species, you know, we may find that those four oranges are not well adapted to a time of less water or more water or hotter temperatures or more storms. And we may need a different kind of orange. Where are we going to find it? So that's why preserving this, this uh, incredible um, heritage of, of biological diversity that we inherited and we're squandering, um, it's just, it's really, really important. And, and, the, and you know, you can, you can put it all this in seed banks and people are doing that and they've got this vault in Norway or Denmark where they're putting as many seeds as they can. But, the, but we don't know how long seeds will last under those circumstances. The real key is to keep planting them. And, and the biological farmers. diversity is an issue with animals as well, from what I gather. Absolutely. Well, the chicken, we're down to one variety of chicken. The Cornish cross is essential. Or the turkey. That's, that's the great case. 99% of the turkeys in production uh, in America are the broad-breasted white. This is just a, just a horrible bird. Um, we, we, <laughs> we, we, no, we bred it for maximum white meat you know, huge breasts, so huge that this animal can't have sex unassisted anymore because the breast gets in the way. So right. every turkey you've ever had is artificially inseminated. And they all start from a very small number of common breeding places, from what I understand. Oh, yeah. They're, they're all produced in a handful of places. They're so it's like less than five or something like something that. Something like that, yeah. So, you know, if, you're, if somebody buys a Thanksgiving turkey in Toledo and somebody else buys one in, you know, in, in their Chapel Hill, their brothers are there. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah. they are. And um, uh, and this turkey also has been so overbred that it's you know it's really a stupid bird. These are the birds that you know when it rains, uh, look up, and fill their mouths with water and drown. Um, so it's not a very resourceful animal. And someday there will be a turkey blight, and there will be a disease, and we will lose uh, you know our turkey crop. And um, Fortunately, there's an effort to save some of the older breeds. Uh, Slow Food has been very involved in that effort and keep them going. And, you know, they're, they're wonderful creatures. Uh, they're, they're smarter, for one thing. They can still have sex and do other wonderful things, but um, they take longer to grow. Uh, and I've watched them grow side by side. Um, and, uh, you know, that broad-breasted white grows twice as fast. And, of course, industry loves it. But industry is very short-sighted if it lets the other ones go. Let me link up two... Um terms that are used a lot out there, the food police and pleasure in eating. Now, you, you and I both get accused a lot of being the food police, and the implication there is that we're commanding people what to eat, and that this prescriptive nature is going to remove the pleasure from eating. And so, you know, no longer are people going to have French fries and bacon cheeseburgers, but they're all going to have to eat sprouts. And so that's, that's the, the basic claim. And you're, I think one point you've made nicely, I'd love to hear you expand on this a bit, is that eating can, can have more pleasure by eating foods that are good for you and good for the environment. Why would that be? Well, you know, it's another way in which um, it's a beautiful thing about this movement. I mean, in the same way, the best choices for your health are the best choices for the environment. The best choices for your pleasure are often the best choices for the environment because food that's been grown with care, animals that have uh, been able to have the diet that they were evolved to have and get to live outside, guess what? They're less stressful, and as a result, they taste better when you eat them. Um, this is, you know, this no sacrifice in quality is involved with eating from a sustainable food chain. Indeed, as chefs like Alice Waters have shown us, 
this is how you get taste back into food. That industrial food is degraded as a matter of taste. It's not grown for taste. It's 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 grown for efficiency. For it, it's it's a food system based on quality, on quantity rather than quality. Um, the farmers growing sustainable agriculture in this country today uh, are much more concerned with quality, and their stuff just tastes better. I mean, the reason farmers, uh, chefs like organic food. Is, um, is not for political reasons. In the end, it's all about taste for them, and they say it tastes better. Um, why should it taste better? Well, it's grown with more care, and, and if you grow something in a healthy, living soil, that soil is more complex, has more, different, uh, more diversity of, of, of chemical compounds and creatures in it, and the food that grows in that soil will be correspondingly more complex, which is to say more flavorful. Those defensive compounds I was talking about earlier, they are what give flavor to food. Uh, by and large. And um, so there's no trade-off in terms of pleasure. Um, yeah, there are people who don't like fruits and vegetables and would rather tuck into a hamburger. Um, you know, I don't know that they've tasted the best fruits and vegetables coming off America's farms today. Um, I, have, I have tasted those. I've seen kids with those. I mean, I've seen kids, um, schools where, uh, you know, there's a wonderful organic farmer in Maine named Elliot Coleman, and he grows the sweetest carrots that I've ever had. And um, his carrots are the currency of choice in the trading among kids at lunch hour. Uh, they command more than that Pop-Tart. They command more than candy because they're so good. Uh, so, you know, I think we teach with taste and we lead with pleasure. And um, uh, this is not about giving up things. The trade-off is money. Uh, the big trade-off is money eating well, eating healthily, so far, given the policies we have, given the system we have, cost more money. Um, and, and that's, you know, for some people that's going to be a struggle and we need to help them. We need policy solutions to help them be able to afford healthier food. But for the rest of us, for most of us, um, digging down in our pockets to spend a little bit more money for higher quality food will be rewarding as a matter of pleasure, as a matter of health, and as a matter of healing the planet. One thing that's woven through some of what you're saying is the, the concept of distance, in a way. And when you say that people will enjoy some of the better-grown food, um, there are a number of reasons. One is that it could taste better. One is that people know it's better for them. But it's also that people are closer to understanding where it came from. And yeah. so, you know, in this concept, in, the, in this context, the, the term food miles has come up. How far does food have to be shipped? before you eat it. And that means there's physical distance between people and their food that didn't occur earlier in human history. But there's also psychological distance. Yeah, and intellectual there? distance. I mean, people we don't, just, they don't, we're disconnected. Yeah. You know, there, there are millions of children in America who think a carrot is this glossy orange bullet that comes in a plastic bag. They have no idea it's a root because they've only seen it in those little plastic bags. And they go to the farmer's market and they say, oh, that's what that is. That, I'm eating a root. <laughs> um, so, you know, one of the things I've been trying to do in my work is shorten the food chain. Um, and allow people to see where their food comes from. It has an enormous effect on the decisions people make. People really care about how their food is produced. Those facts are hidden from us by industry. Industry doesn't want you to go in the kitchen where your food is being cooked. Um, I know, as a journalist, they don't let me in. By and large, they don't let me in. Um, when people can see how their food is made, whether it's the feedlot beef or the, uh, or the high fructose corn syrup, or you know, whatever it is, they tend to make really good decisions. And I am a great believer, and perhaps it's because I'm a journalist and I have that faith in information, but that when people can, can see where their food comes from, that's all we need. We don't necessarily need to change the laws. We, you know, the, the law we should fight for is transparency. 
and that you know there should be um, you know a camera in every slaughterhouse or a glass wall in every slaughterhouse, and that's all you need to do to clean up the slaughterhouses, um, and that um, you will uh, that you know that the light of information and knowledge is is a great disinfectant. And, and that would be true in the food system. And keeping the food system long and complicated and opaque is very much the goal of, of industrial agriculture. Uh, I know, because I've tried to investigate the food chain, and it's very, very difficult. They don't want you to see. Uh, well, why is that? Why don't they want you in the kitchen? I think that's, that's, that's a red flag. So um, I think, you know, by, by showing people how their food is produced, that's, that's the beginning of changing how they eat. And that's not about telling people how to eat. That's just about telling people what they're eating and then let them decide. You know, you were, when you were talking about shining light on how foods are made, you made me remember this little tongue-in-cheek thing somebody did on television, which was to, to discuss how, what it would take to, to uh, destroy a peeps. So you know the marshmallow things that you find? Yeah. The, have you seen this piece? It's very funny. So anyway, these little marshmallow things that they sell around Easter time, <clears throat> um, people, they, they took them outside and they dropped an anvil on it. They ran over it with a, <laughs> with, with a steamroller. And, and it, they kept popping back. I mean, nothing would crush this peeps. It was very interesting. So maybe that could be one of your rules. A, food, a food's <laughs> not a food if your grandmother, your great-grandmother doesn't recognize it or it can't be, can't destroyed, be destroyed by a steamroller. Well, you know, one of my rules is uh, it's not a food if it doesn't eventually rot. And I carry around, I don't have it with me right now, but I carry around a pack of Twinkies that I bought two years ago for a lecture. And every now and then I'm, I'm, I'm on the phone and it's on my desk and I give it a little squeeze, see how it's doing. And it's still as, as spongy as the day I bought it. Now, why is that? Well, the reason it doesn't rot is because the microorganisms uh, we share this planet with, as well as the insects and the mice, are notably uninterested in it. <laughs> there's no mold on that because there's no nutritional value in that. And... Um, uh, you know, the bugs and the, the, uh, the microbes, they're not stupid. Um, one of the reasons we process food is to make it imperishable. And we make it imperishable by removing nutrients that these other species want. Uh, and so we should take a tip. for uh, They still have a certain culinary wisdom that we seem to have lost. That's so interesting. So let me f um, finish with a, the following question. I think in the discussion we've had so far, there are many ideas of what people can do to change uh, their environment and their health by eating in a different way. What can government do? What do you think is the appropriate role for government? And what would you suggest if leaders in government start getting more and more interested in this? Well, in terms of specific policy prescriptions, you know, I don't know. I'm not a policymaker. And um, uh, I know where we need to go, um, but exactly the mechanisms that will get us there, I'll leave to the lawyers and policymakers and, and, uh, and uh, Congress people. But we need a, uh, a new kind of farm bill, uh, a food bill. Uh, we need to recognize that the farm bill really sets the big rules. And the farm bill is one of the reasons that we have monocultures. It's one of the reasons that we're growing um, uh, unhealthy calories rather than healthy calories. And so we need to change the incentives. Right now we're paying farmers to grow as much corn as they can, no matter what it does to the environment and no matter what that corn does to our health. Um, we need um, a, a, to change the incentives to make it worthwhile for farmers to grow real food that people can eat. Um, so agriculture policy needs to line up very, with, very with health policy exactly and environmental right. policy. We can't have a situation where the Surgeon General is decrying obesity and diabetes on the one hand, and the President is signing farm bills that, that make high fructose corn syrup and hydrogenate oil cheap. That is a complete contradiction, and we have to align that. When we're doing farm policy, we have to do 
basically an environmental impact statement on what those policies will do to the environment, and we should do a public health impact statement. Because one of the, the really important determinants of, of public health today in America is the way the Farm Bill is written. And we have been writing it without any regard for public health, uh, certainly the subsidy provisions. Um, so that's one important thing. But I also think the government can do a lot to encourage this movement uh, toward a more local and more sustainable agriculture. You know, there's plenty of subsidies if you're growing, um, you know, biotech uh, wheat or uh, biotech corn or soy. There's nothing if you want to go organic. Um, there should be money to help farmers convert. It takes three years to convert to organic. It's really expensive because during that period you can't use a certain set of pesticides, but you don't get the premium on your crop. You have to sell it into the conventional market. How about money to tie farmers over that transition? How about rewarding farmers for taking better care of their land uh, rather than growing as many bushels of something as they can? Uh, how about having a grain reserve again so that we're, we're less prone to these price shocks that we're seeing today? Let the government buy grain from farmers when it's cheap and sell it when it's dear, just as we do with petroleum. Um, this is a matter of national security. So there's, there's a great, there's a huge role for government. But the important point is we don't have to wait for government. We can do something now. You can do something at lunch. You know, you can order food in a certain way that will help build this new food economy. And uh, so that's what's very exciting. It's a very empowering issue. I mean, the fact is, you know, we have a, a very fundamental political power, and that's our forks. We can vote with our forks for a different kind of food system. So we start there, and, you know, we also have to vote with our votes. Uh, because some people can't afford to vote with their with their forks, um, but we have to work on both sides. Well, Michael, thank you so much. Uh, thank you not only for joining us today, but of course for the big impact you've had on the world and and uh, how you've moved ahead whole cultures into thinking about this issue in a more constructive way. So thank you again for joining us. Oh, thank you very much, Kelly. You're, you're over generous in your praise. Um, so to sign off, um, this is produced by the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Um, please join us with the other excellent webcasts by looking at our website, www.yalerudcenter.org. Uh, and in addition to the podcast, there are lots of, inf lots of information about things in a free email newsletter on food and food policy that you can get. Thank you.